Well, it is a real joy to be with you. I know every week it feels like a real joy just to gather with some other fellow human beings, but you know we've been uh, living in Michigan for now for some time, and every time we gather with people, we're getting to know almost everybody because we haven't ever lived in Michigan, but we do have a partner church up there that's graciously hosting us right now, providing us a place to live, and so we love gathering with them, but it's very sweet for us to come gather with people here that we know and love and that love us, and to get to know the new faces that are joining this family, and so it's good to be with you all. Uh, one thing here, you see this little QR code on your uh, handout. If you're not receiving our monthly newsletter and you'd like to, once a month we send out a few new prayer requests and a couple stories just to update you on what God is doing in our lives and in the work that we've been called to do. So if you'd like to join that list, you can just snap that with your phone and then uh, sign up right there. And also on the back, we've got some more general prayer requests. As uh, has been mentioned, Bible Translation Sunday is today. And you, you might be asking, is that a real thing or just something you know, like a Hallmark holiday or whatnot? It actually is a real thing. Uh, back in the 60s, Uncle Cam Townsend, who started the Wycliffe Bible Translators, knew someone in the Senate. And September 30th is actually the Feast of St. Jerome. Uh, Jerome was one of the first to translate the Bible. He translated into Latin, which was one of the major languages of the ancient world. And so the Senate of the United States of America has actually designated September 30th as Bible Translation Day. So whatever Sunday comes right around that, we usually recognize as Bible Translation Sunday. So here's a few things to fuel your general prayers and knowledge about the status of Bible translation in the world and the incredible amount of work that still needs to go on. Would love to talk with you more about that if you have questions about that afterwards. But today we get to look at God's word together in our own language. So if you have uh, your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50 where we'll be spending our time today. Well, it was a match made in language school. John and Bonnie had both felt God's call to their lives as single people, and yet when they met one another, studying linguistics, getting ready to go serve God as Bible translators, they also met each other and God uh, led them to marriage and uh, ministry with one another. I hear there's been a lot of marriages going around here lately. That's, that's great, exciting. So John and Bonnie were newly married, and they were assigned to work with the Arop language on the northern coast of Papua New Guinea. They had just arrived in the country. They were beginning to learn the language, live among the people, and they were excited to begin this work of translating the scriptures with and for those people. During that process, some of the neighboring languages just down the coast of them, too, to be precise, actually had come to them and said, can you help us get the Bible too? And this really broke their hearts. They were so torn because they, they genuinely wanted to help these people, and yet they needed to focus on the one language that they'd been assigned to for the current time. So they had to respectfully decline and say, well, we'll let people know that you would like it too, and we'll try to figure something out, but we need to dedicate our time to Arop. July 17, 1998, John and Bonnie were out of the village. They were getting restocked, resupplied, resting up a little bit. And a powerful earthquake, one of the most powerful any people in that generation had ever felt, hit the area. People reported watching the tide go out, out and out till they could hardly see it anymore. And then they 
they described what was some kind of explosion on the horizon and water flew up into the sky and people began running in terror. Three massive tidal waves hit the north coast of Papua New Guinea that day and over 2,000 people were killed. Now that might not sound like a lot. If you'll recall, not too long ago, we remembered 9-11, 2001 in America, 2,977 were killed that day in a nation of 285 million. These are small villages, so the loss of 2,000 people was absolutely devastating. In the process, the language project was completely disrupted. One of the translators was killed, tragically. But one of the other translators who was a pastor going around talking to people after this disaster said this, people's eyes are open now. And he told John and Bonnie, now is when we have to help people in these other languages get the scriptures. We hear a story like this and we're immediately given reactions of grief, horror, shock. How could things like this happen? Where was God when something like this happened? Why didn't God just stop this from happening? How can a good God allow something like this to happen? And you know, when we ask these questions with a genuine heart, not, not blaming God, not in contempt of God, but with a genuine heart, these can be good questions. They help us get down to the bottom. They help us figure out what's life, what's going, really going on in this life. And what we're gonna see in this story that we look at today and what we hear in this story from John and Bonnie is that God is writing a story of his goodness and greatness as he brings life from death. God in this world, in this fallen world, is writing a story about his own goodness, his own greatness, as he brings life from death. We see that pattern all over the Bible. And Joseph's story that we're gonna look at here is not unique in that regard, but I think it does give us some unique insights. So let's look at this text together. Before we read the text today, let's review the story. We're gonna have Sunday school hour for a little bit. Go through the story here that many of you know, but the Joseph story takes up, we just finished working through a lot of these texts with the team we're uh, helping in Nigeria. The Joseph story is the longest set of stories in the book of Genesis. Amazing, longer than creation, even longer than Abraham. We get this story of Joseph. He's the oldest son of Jacob, the oldest son from, well, not the oldest son, but the oldest son from his favorite wife. And you can figure out how that would go. Possibly even the favored, spoiled child. And his brothers begin to resent that. Well, he, he receives a series of dreams from God and imprudently, then he goes and he tells them to his father and his brothers because the dreams talk about him ruling over his father and brothers. Well, his brothers start to resent him all the more. He's at home while his brothers, resentfully, are going out to pasture the sheep. And then father sends this son out to the resentful brothers to check on them and report back to dad. You can feel the tension rising. Well, as they see this favored son, this dreamer coming in the distance, the tension is welling up in them too, and a plan, a plot to even kill him comes to mind. Well, later on, they decide better of that, and they decide to pass him off and sell him to some merchants 
who are going down to Egypt. And then they lie to their father, dipping his coat in blood and saying a wild animal had killed him and they had just found his coat and that was it. Meanwhile, down in Egypt, Joseph is sold as a slave to Potiphar, the chief of Pharaoh's bodyguard. But down there, God blesses Joseph. He blesses him and he becomes the chief servant over the whole house. Well, life is getting better for Joseph despite being in slavery. And during this time, Potiphar's wife takes a fancy to him and day after day after day attempts to seduce him. Life is not going so well anymore. When finally she sees that she's failed in her attempts, she turns on Joseph, accuses him of impropriety, and this chief servant is now in prison. But God blesses Joseph in prison. And Joseph becomes the chief servant of all prison, of all the prison, doing all the work to serve the, the inmates there. Well, one day Pharaoh's chief cup bearer and baker get thrown in prison and they receive frightening dreams one night that they can't understand, but Joseph is given the ability to interpret those dreams for them. They come true. One man is killed, one man is restored to his job. Pharaoh then experiences his own frightening dreams, but none of his wise men can interpret them. Well, at this moment, the cupbearer who had conveniently forgotten about Joseph remembers, hey, maybe this guy can help the Pharaoh. He tells Pharaoh about him. Joseph comes before him, interprets the dream with God's help that there will be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. Pharaoh then immediately appoints Joseph, this prisoner, to be his right-hand man ruling what was the most powerful country in the ancient world. When the famine hits Egypt, all the surrounding lands are affected, including Joseph's homeland of Canaan. His brothers come down to Egypt to get food sent by their father. And one day, Joseph walks into his throne room, unknowing what's about to happen, and he sees these brothers bowing down before him. Fast forward a little bit. Joseph brings his father and brothers and all their family down to Egypt. They outlast the famine. And years later, Joseph's father dies and then fearing for their lives, his brothers come, and this is our text. Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Well, maybe one thing you notice here immediately is that what Joseph's brothers did 
is recognized as evil. Verse 15, they clearly understand what they did was evil. He might pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Joseph's father and the father of his brothers understands this as well. They did evil to you in verse 17. And Joseph doesn't minimize it. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. In the part of the story we skipped, Joseph's brothers actually face a bit of a crisis. You're probably familiar with this part of the story. And they blame their misfortune on the fact that they have this collective sin. In Genesis 42, 21, they say, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us when he begged them to not do this. They sold him anyways. Now that their father was gone, they thought for sure their powerful brother, the second most powerful man or most powerful man, however you wanna look at it, in the world was gonna pay them back for this evil. In fact, many scholars debate in this passage whether or not Joseph's father actually said these words about please forgive the transgression of your brothers. Or is this something that they just made up? I'm, I'm inclined to see it as a genuine account for this very reason, that Jacob had also received evil against him. Remember, they lied to him. He had borne this grief for, his, for many, many years until he met Joseph a few years before his death. He understood how evil it was. And so I'm inclined to think that perhaps he actually did say this, recognizing, wow, Joseph has quite a case to get back against you. But against everything we might expect from our gut-level human reaction, right, we see how God had been at work in Joseph, that his first thought is not retribution. It's not about how to get back. So let's look at four important parts of the statement he makes here. First, he says, do not fear. Do not fear, in verse 19. They had every reason to be afraid of Joseph. But he starts with that because he wants, to, he wants to give them some clarification, something he's learned over the years. But before that, he needs them to be able to listen. So he says, do not fear. And then he says, secondly, am I in the place of God? You see, it says, for am I in the place of God? The reason that they don't need to be afraid is that Joseph, again, the most powerful person in the ancient world, hasn't let it go to his head. He understands that he isn't God. In fact, you may know from your own studies of the ancient world that the pharaohs and the people viewed the pharaohs as deity. And yet, Joseph doesn't. He's had an experience with the real God, and he knows he is not him, and he is not wise enough to figure out what's the appropriate way to judge his brothers for the evil that they did. He's not God. He is not their maker. So even in his exalted status, he doesn't rush to justice, rush to retribution. He recognizes God will take care of things the way it ought to be taken care of. The third thing he says here, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. So here Joseph again affirms their confession. Yeah, what you guys did was evil. It was. 
not just what they did, but what's that word there? You meant. Their intention was evil. And this is one reason that human justice, and Joseph recognizes, human justice is so limited. We can't know the hearts of other people. We can't fully know what goes on in the minds of those around us. They can help us understand, and we can try to communicate with each other, but we can't fully know the intentions of others. But clearly through this episode, Joseph has been given some insight into their intentions. But the fullest intentions of man's heart are only known by God. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How many more emphatic words can we get in that one sentence? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. God can understand these things, and he brought about a great flood as a result. Yet God here gives Joseph some insight into what's going on. You intended evil, but then we get to his fourth statement, but God intended it for good. Back in August, I was not able to travel to Africa because of the pandemic situation, but the team had finished the last story set in Genesis that we were working through. And so myself and another consultant were able to meet with them on a virtual platform every day for two weeks. Uh, and you know these guys had traveled through bandit-ridden country, bad back roads, bouncing around on these unair-conditioned buses in order to get to the city just so they could have good enough internet to be able to talk to us for a few hours a day to talk about their translation and make sure that it was really accurate. It's, that's really what the text says. They wanted it to be good. They wanted it to be true and right. Well, so when, the, when it came out that I was gonna have to get up at five o'clock every day in order to be able to meet them, I thought, you know what, these guys have, have been through a lot. This is gonna be a pretty small sacrifice for me to get up and meet with these guys at 5 a.m., and it was a true joy. But we came to this passage, this very passage, and here is what I read in the back translation I was given. So they translated into their language, and then it was put into English so I could better understand what was going on there. And this is what it said. What you intended for evil to me, God turned it to good. As a statement so far, I mean, that's not so bad. But you have to recognize none of these translators actually knows Hebrew. The way the process works for them is this. Another group had translated this Hebrew text into a language of Hausa, which is the language of Northwest Nigeria. It's one of the larger tribes, and so it's a language that tr certain tribes can use to talk to one another because their tribal languages are different. So they'll use this larger tribal language. So Hausa has two translations of the Bible, and they're using that as their basis to translate it into Chichipu. Well, you can see we're taking steps, right? Into Hausa and then into Chichipu. And what I came to understand through asking questions and looking at the Chichipu myself was they actually did a good job translating the Hausa, but there was a problem here. You know, I, I don't know Hausa and I don't know Chichipu very much, but I do know enough Hebrew to look and figure out that, that, that when it says, what you intended for evil to me, God turned to good. You see how the verbs are different there? When Hebrew, they're exactly the same. Exactly the same. What the brothers did, they intended something. God did. God intended something. 
God didn't respond to what the brothers did here. God had an equal intention in the exact same event. But their intention was evil. They were resenting and hating their brother. But God had another intention in all of this bad family dynamics. He was intending to send his servant to Egypt to bring many people out alive. God intended something good. Well, it took a little while for me to be able to explain this. Zoom, again, so please pray for us the next two weeks. Zoom is a very hard medium sometimes to communicate these things. You can't read each other's body language very well. You get interrupted when the, the internet does funny things. But after we talked about this for a while, finally I saw it in their eyes that it clicked and immediately the question came back, can God do that? And that's when I knew they understood, okay? That's when I knew they understood, can God do that? What does it mean that the brothers intended evil but God intended good? Well, first of all, look at that very small English word there, it, it. God meant it, as the English, English Standard Version has, God meant it for good. What is the it referring to? Do a little Bible study with me, think it through. Now, unfortunately, in English, we don't have this category of grammatical gender, okay? I'm gonna get nerdy on you for just 20 seconds. Hang with me, okay? In Hebrew, words are either grammatically feminine or grammatically masculine, one or the other. The word for evil is grammatically feminine. The word that's representing it here is a suffix on a word in Hebrew, and it's grammatically feminine. The reason for that is to show it is referring to that feminine word in the clause right before it, okay? It couldn't be any clearer in Hebrew. They meant evil against him, and that evil, God meant that evil for good. And that's why they asked this question. Can God really do that? In the early fifth century, there was a teenage boy who was captured in a raid by some pirates. They came from a nearby island. They took him captive along with a bunch of treasure from his hometown, and they forced him into slavery back on their island. And while one day he was out tending his master's animals, he received a dream. And in this dream, it gave him a vision for how he could escape and get back to his home. Well, first he didn't know quite what to do, but then he thought this vision might be from God, and he followed the instructions of the vision, and he made it home. Well, not long after being home, he received another dream. And in this time, in the dream, there was a man standing dressed like one of his captors. And this man was pleading for him to come back and to tell them about Jesus. Well, after dealing with his emotions for some time, he finally went to study the scriptures some more and then traveled back to the island where he had been taken captive and began to preach about Jesus. He knew their language. He knew their customs. And he had even developed a heart of compassion for them because for many years he had watched them lost in their dark religion, even including human sacrifices. Now I ask you, why did God write this man's story, the man we call St. Patrick, in such a manner? Why couldn't God just let this teenage boy grow up in his home and then later on in life give him a vision and maybe a heart for these people, those Irish people over there? Oh, you should go over there and tell them about Jesus. Why, God, why didn't God do it that way? It would have saved him a lot of suffering. 
He could have grown up with his family. He wouldn't have had to endure all the, all the pain and the misery that he had to in slavery over there. But as we mentioned earlier, God is writing a story. It's a story about God's goodness. It's a story about God's greatness bringing life out of death. Because this young boy named Maywin, in a sense, died when he was taken captive. And many things in Maywin died. But when he came back as Patrick, he took a new name going back to the island because he wanted to recognize that he was a new man. He had come back from the dead, in a sense, and now he was bringing the message to Jesus, of Jesus to these people that had done so much evil to him. You see, it wasn't that this suffering was just incidental. It was through the suffering that Patrick endured that he actually gained a heart of compassion for those people. And thousands upon thousands of Irish men and women owed their thanks to God and to him because it was how they heard about Jesus. Why is a hard question, isn't it? Why did God do this? Why did he do that? Why did he do it this way? It delves into areas that we really can't know too well. And don't you think Joseph asked that question a lot? On the caravan down to Egypt? While he's in slavery to Potiphar? Maybe while he's in prison for all those years? Or maybe the years after the cupbearer gets out and he's still stuck in prison? Maybe he asked it while he was sitting on the throne. (laughs) In unbelief. God, why did you do it this way? Well, earlier in the story, in Genesis 45, you can turn there if you want to. In Genesis 45, the very first time that Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he gives us a glimpse into what answer God had brought him to. This was, the, this was his first, we, we already read in chapter 50 his second answer. This is the first time he sees them. This is what he says. Genesis 45, verses four to eight. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Now read this verse. This is amazing. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. I I read that over and over in Hebrew to make sure that's exactly what it says. Couldn't, Couldn't be clearer. So it was not you who sent me here but God. Three times in this short answer, Joseph attributes the fact that he's in Egypt to God sending him there. Doesn't it, clear, doesn't it seem clear here? He's not representing his brothers as the primary actor. Oh yeah, they were involved. Oh yeah, later on he calls it evil. But here, it's clear God is the one with the primary intentions. God sent Joseph. How did he send him? He sent him through the resentment and the evil acts of his brothers. That's how he sent him. But that just starts to scratch the surface, 
God had a purpose in sending him there. I think we're starting to see that. Is there anything more to it? What else can we learn from this story? I think just like St. Patrick, God's method is not incidental. Why would Joseph have to go to Egypt as a slave and suffer so much? Well, think about this. Let's, let's flip the question a little bit. How would a proud, favored son of a sheep herder in Canaan become the humble and wise man sitting on the throne? Do you think that Joseph was ready to be that Joseph? How did he learn their customs, their language, and develop a compassion for the Egyptians? How did he learn to trust the Lord and not give, him give himself the glory? The magnanimous and heroic Joseph that we see in chapter 50 could not have been there without the process that God used to get him there. God is writing a story of his goodness and greatness, bringing life out of death. There were many things in the old Joseph that had to die so that the new Joseph could be there to fulfill his role that God had for him. But beyond one man, we also see God's goodness and greatness. We live in a fallen world that's under a curse. God gave Pharaoh disturbing dreams about what is to come. And God raised Joseph up out of prison to lead the country through famine, to preserve the offspring of Abraham, the offspring through which we get Jesus. Genesis 50, 20 ends this way. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So maybe we could even just summarize this and say, God intended life. Through a deadly time of famine, the sign of life under a curse, God is mercifully preserving the life of many nations that didn't recognize him as God and didn't, didn't care at all about him. God is writing a story it's a story about his goodness and his greatness, and it should blow our minds at how complex and wonderful it is. It's a story that shows the greatness of his love despite the sick reality of our sin. It's a story of life from death. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. We know that verse. Our sin demands death. Famine is coming, friends. Famine is coming. It will engulf the whole world. And then, just as all hope is fading, God has sent his servant, the perfect man for the job, to save the world. Sounds like our story, doesn't it? Except this one came to live the perfect life that we could never live. Then he died the death that every one of us deserved. God sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not die, but have everlasting life, John 3, 16. Jesus, the Messiah, was sent by his father. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus, the Messiah our Lord. At some point, our why questions have to be laid down. They're good to ask with the right heart, but at some point, we have to lay them down and we have to bow the knee to our maker. 
Maybe we'll get some of these answers like Joseph did. It seems like he got some answers, didn't he? And we're thankful for those answers because they can help us. But maybe we won't get those answers for a long, long time. Maybe we won't get those answers till we're with God in eternity. But now the choice confronts us. Are we going to trust the God of Joseph the same way that he did? Or are we gonna just leave this all up to being random chance and human schemes and this sort of thing? God is writing a story. It's a story about his goodness. It's a story about his greatness. And we need to look to him because it's a story about how we can have life out of death. It's a story where we can take our worries and deepest pains to him and let him do what only he can do. After John and Bonnie had dealt with the initial shock of this terrible event that had happened to many, many people that they loved, and they grieved the loss of many people that they loved, they asked God, what can we do to help? Well, the first thing they did was not Bible translation, was going out and helping people in this community, both rebuild their lives, relocate the community to a new place, because clearly that was not a safe place for the village. But as they were doing this, God started to give them a new vision. And in this vision, he was showing them many languages working together. And it wasn't just two more languages. 11 other languages joined the Arop project. And now all 12 languages are working together as a cluster project to get God's word, not just to the Arop people, but everyone in that whole community, in that whole region that was hit by the tsunami. God is bringing life from death. He's proclaiming his word to the nations. As Pastor Peter said, people's eyes are open. We might say that Satan wanted to use that tsunami to destroy a Bible translation project. But God used that same tsunami to open the door for many more languages to get his word and for many more people that would have not even cared about it to suddenly have open eyes and want it. That's the Nystrom story. And God's writing that same story in your life too. Let's go to him in prayer. Our great God and Father, we confess that we are people that need you. Our sins do demand death. And you, you sent, you sent the perfect man, the perfect man for the job. He, he lived a life that we never could and then graciously took our sins upon himself and died in our place. We thank you for Jesus. We want his message to go out to all the nations. We pray that we continue to do that. But Lord, drive it deep down in our hearts right now as we prepare to go out into a new week. We need to believe this. We need your help. God, when our hearts ask why, would you show us Jesus? Help us to look to him. Help us to trust you. And Lord, to trust that you are writing a good story where you will be glorified and your people will receive the satisfaction of their souls. And we pray this great thing through Jesus' name, amen.